Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 15. Compulsion, Obsessiveness and Obsessive-Compulsive Disorders. Like all mental phenomena, the field of obsessive-compulsive disorders is extraordinarily diverse. Compulsive tendencies extend far into everyday life and need not necessarily be pathological. Everyone has their rituals that they insist upon observing more or less fastidiously and, if interrupted, would react too sensitively. From adhering to a particular routine, say, before an important exam or a date, to athletes who cross themselves, put on their lucky socks, or perform some other ritual before competing. In some cases, forms of compulsion seem to be a steadfast way to cope with life. For example, the tendency to meticulously keep track of one's expenses, to save money, to rigidly venerate structure, order, cleanliness, and so on. Of course, this need not always take the form of a love of orderliness and the military-like organisation of one's housekeeping, a kind of compulsiveness that has sometimes been used as a stereotype to describe the character of a particular nation, yes, as typically German. Among the so-called obsessive-compulsive disorders, there is a set of symptoms that those afflicted must follow by virtue of some inner compulsion, even when they do not want to, and which massively interferes with their ability to enjoy and cope with life, whereby there is no sharp distinction between normal and pathological compulsiveness. This can take the form of intrusive thoughts, unfounded fears, such as having run someone over in traffic, even though it most certainly did not happen, or compulsively deliberating over certain issues without being able to come to any clear conclusions or solutions. Compulsions can also take the form of certain actions or rituals. For instance, the compulsion to wash or to count, the compulsion to touch or to be in control such as always touching the doorknob exactly three times, or checking the oven four times before leaving the house. Or it can involve certain inner mental impulses, often of an aggressive nature, like harming someone you in fact love, your partner, your child, or harming yourself, falling off of a cliff or something similar. Impulses that can be extraordinarily frightening because it feels as if the action must be carried out immediately, even if, in reality, this almost never happens. Compulsive symptoms can occur as their own type of disease. It is not uncommon, however, for them to occur in connection with other mental illnesses, quite often in connection with anxiety symptoms depression, as well as psychosomatic symptoms 
and so-called personality disorders. There are a multitude of findings and treatment approaches to obsessive-compulsive disorders from the most diverse areas of psychotherapy. A psychodynamic approach involves, first of all, trying in the most general sense to understand the meaning of the symptoms, whereby this is a complex and multi-layered matter, which, moreover, the various psychoanalytic schools answer differently. What stands out, to begin with, is that many obsessive-compulsive symptoms share an underlying form of thought, which, in childhood development, has been characterised as magical thinking, and which is characteristic of children from about two to five years old. Everyone may indeed recall that urge in childhood not to touch certain parts of the asphalt when walking, to skip over certain patterns on the sidewalk, etc. Certain thoughts and actions are linked with incidents even if rationally speaking there is no connection, as in counting to nine three times and knocking on wood so that nothing bad happens, or thinking a positive thought so as to counter the effects of a negative thought. The compulsive ritual must be carried out, even if physically there is no apparent causal relationship to what is intended. In the process, there is a basic tendency to treat one's own thoughts like actions, as if an evil thought could in reality kill, a good thought heal. But this also means, if there is a magical connection between one's own thoughts, wishes and actions, as well as all possible external occurrences, then one's own thinking is, at the same time, always responsible. Also, and indeed especially, if something bad happens. In this way, children often sometimes process, say, the death of a close relative, with a sense of guilt. This means, in reference to themselves. This happened to him because I thought of something bad. I am to blame. A good reason to control your thoughts very closely. Even in ordinary life, certain remnants from this time of magical thinking remain unchanged, like when we telepathically cheer on our favourite team while watching football in front of the television, or when we keep our fingers crossed, etc. So it is often the case with compulsive symptoms that what becomes paramount is this aspect of coping with fear, guilt and aggression. Many symptoms appear to possess the character of counterthoughts or counteractions which are directed at certain fears, like when checking whether one really turned off the stove, we ward off the fear of a catastrophic fire breaking out uncontrollably. Frequently compulsive symptoms are also supposed to soothe feelings of guilt, thereby offsetting blame, as is characteristic of the defence mechanism of undoing. The correlation between compulsion and fear 
is perhaps easier to understand than that between compulsion and guilt. In episode 10 on fear and anxiety disorders, we heard that fear can function as an inner alarm system that is directed against the intrusion of unbearable states, thoughts and feelings. Where fear prevails, there is in most cases also an increased tendency towards constraint, as can be observed in countries that protect themselves against terrorist threats. Security and control measures are expanded. On a psychological level, compulsion is, as it were, our internal bouncer. Scrutinising the clean clothes of those who enter, turning away sinister guests, and trying to maintain control over who comes and goes in the psychic home. Rituals, and in their pathological form also many compulsive symptoms, have a fear-assuaging character, providing a feeling of security and control, just like the bouncer. The more rigid the restrictive measures, oftentimes the greater the fear behind them and the more fragile the feeling of control actually is. Some psychoanalytical conceptions of compulsion, especially those in the tradition of Sigmund Freud, have moreover pointed to the psychosexual character of at least certain forms of compulsive symptoms. In connection with compulsive phenomena, Freud also spoke of the so-called anal character, This choice of words comes across to us a bit strange, for the terminology of psychosexual theories is often enough not especially keen on affording an impartial understanding, despite referring to essential aspects of human development. What is meant is a phase in psychological development when a sense of cleanliness is acquired, including, among other things, toilet training. So, when children learn to control their own excretions, children are by no means averse to excretion by birth, but rather find it highly interesting. According to this conception, the way in which toilet training takes place has a significant influence on a person's psychological development. However, This is not necessarily only about the actual approach to cleanliness that children acquire at this age, but rather also about the evaluation of what the child produces, in both the figurative as well as literal sense. A very rigid demand for cleanliness is not only perceived by the child as sensible guidance for a virtuous and orderly existence, but rather, above all, as a devaluation of that which they bring forth from within. Is what is in me just yuck-yuck, dirt, something bad that has to be gotten rid of immediately? Or may I show what I have inside me to others, to my parents? Can they accept it without turning away in disgust? Thereby, perhaps actual toilet training and learning to control one's excretions 
is merely representative of the general approach the parents take towards that which is inside the child. Thus, also their own affects, their physicality, lust and desire, but also aggression and anger. This phase of psychological development is also associated with significant advances in the development of the child's autonomy, like language acquisition or learning to walk. If the parents are able to accept what the child has come to externalise and allow the child a degree of freedom, then the child will also be able to integrate these parts, be they lust and desire, or aggression, or destructiveness. Even the so-called wild affects can mature in the development of the child and can be transformed into productive parts of the self, creativity, sexuality, and the ability to enjoy. Incidentally, accepting definitely does not mean approving of everything that the child makes or does without complaint. Child-rearing always has to do with a delicate balance between freedom, growth and constraint. If, on the other hand, those essential aspects of the child's inner life that are brought forth and expressed outwardly are harshly rejected, denounced, forbidden or even pursued into the child's private sphere, as in, show me your underpants, yuck, did you make poo-poo again? Then over time, the child will conceive of crucial aspects of their inner life as something dirty, evil, all expressions of this inner life as something for which one should feel bad, in other words, guilty. This need not only occur in the form of a strict and disciplinary upbringing, Many ways of devaluing inner processes and affects can also occur in very subtle ways, as we heard about in the episode on the false self. This part of the self, thus, oftentimes remains at an underdeveloped, childishly crude stage. At least certain affects, aggressions and desires that do not become fully integrated in the growing personality. They are rather kept in check by massive feelings of guilt and a scrupulous conscience. The inner bouncer squares up. And from then on, will penalise every transgression severely, even in the form of a thought, stipulating certain punitive measures as compensation for guilt. Today's psychodynamic conceptions have worked out various aspects of obsessive-compulsive disorders, not all of which are reflected in the psychosexual conception just described, such as the conception of the German psychoanalyst Heinz Weiss, to whom is owed some orientation for this episode. In any case, the basic principle still holds true that the meaning of a symptom can, in the final analysis, only be revealed through individual work with the patient. 
It is common practice to classify obsessive-compulsive symptoms according to the psychological function they fulfil. So, compulsive symptoms can be quite functional attempts to organise inner experience, to contain oneself, to bring about inner cohesion. And the more uncertain the inner foundation becomes here, the tighter the reins must often be drawn, just as a crumbling society clings to its identity by laying out rules and laws in a particularly rigid way. It is known from work with psychotic patients that compulsion can be like a defensive bulwark, directed against the disintegration of the ego, against psychotic decompensation. Here, compulsion and compulsive rituals substitute for the inner cohesion holding together the self and have a protective function. What's more, there are compulsive symptoms that serve to bind unbearable inner states of agitation, which can sometimes lay behind certain tics or stereotypical absent-minded behaviours, such as tugging on one's beard, scratching the skin, and so on. Other concepts have dealt with obsessive-compulsive disorder as a special form of conflict management. So, it is in this regard that the analyst Hermann Lang coined the term inhibited rebel. A certain structure of internal conflicts in which subjugation, rebellion, the desire for detachment and fear of separation hold one another in check. So, for instance, the massive feelings of guilt that can arise in the separation aggression that is necessary for a young person to be able to break away from their parents' home. Compulsive symptoms can then act as a kind of self-punishment or as a way to undo that unacceptable wish to break away and revolt, which, in the end, cannot be suppressed setting in motion a cycle of aggression and feelings of guilt. Also of interest are those approaches that place compulsive symptoms into relation with the experience and processing of time and impermanence. Say, for example, with wavering, hesitating, not deciding or procrastinating all specific variations on putting a stop to time, or, in the form of undoing, turning it back. We would like to go into one psychodynamic consideration that can play a role in therapeutic work with obsessive-compulsive patients, and which was first described by the analyst Carl Abraham. What is meant is a certain form of relationship dynamic that can establish itself in some, although not all, cases, whereby here aspects of the inhibited rebel once again come into play. Thus, it so happens that patients do appear to accept the therapeutic setting without complaint, agreeing with the proposed number of hours, the treatment setting, indeed even the analysts' interpretations and ideas. However, 
Behind this apparent conformity, an increasingly dismissive and hence hostile or invalidating attitude towards the therapeutic work or the analyst becomes tangible. The patient appears to be trying at all costs to maintain control of what is happening in that they block out the analyst's interpretations or brush them aside with immaterial compliance, control the beginning or end of the hour by continually coming late or bringing a watch and terminating the hour themselves. Or in that during the session a kind of self-analysis does appear to take place in which the analyst is at most a listener, although without any real influence on what is going on. Here, the conflict dynamics associated with some compulsive pathologies enter into the therapeutic relationship in the flesh, as it were. This is a conflict, on the one hand, between consenting, assimilating and maintaining attachment and on the other, revolting, taking control, and freeing oneself. Something from the patient's inner world or affects is transferred onto the analyst, as when the analyst becomes frustrated with the obdurate patient, preferring to just force the right and good down their throat. That is to say, they themselves feel a compulsion to compel the patient to arrive at a better understanding, and so on, which can actually happen in some therapeutic settings, or when the feelings of countertransference are handled in a less reflective way. Either you do this now, or I cannot treat you any further. This is especially true when the therapist feels shut out of the relationship, treated like a worthless object, or like dirt. The analyst has, in effect, become a player in the patient's inner dynamic by standing in for that part of the patient that yearns for opening, development, change, but however, is treated by the other part of the patient like dirt something worthless, bad, or leprous. And perhaps the therapist must just remain faithful to that condemned part of the patient that has been cast out, even if, in return, they have to put up with being attacked and debased. As with almost all psychological pathologies, a personality organisation dominated by compulsion is a system that maintains a certain inner balance, albeit at the cost of blocking psychic development and inner freedom. The firmer and more rigid certain compulsive symptoms are, the greater the underlying fears and affects can be. Compulsion has an eminent psychological function, which is why it cannot be given up easily even with the most compelling persuasion and the most fitting insights. Here, too, the metaphors of the body politic can provide us an image, the violent overthrow of a dictator 
all too easily leads to the instalment of a new dictator. That is, if chaos and anomie don't break out first. Only once the various parties and forces are reconciled can there be any opportunity for change. This podcast was written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. It has been translated by Suleiman Lawrence and is read by Rebecca Dyson-Smith.